0: Thank you, Zoe, and thank you, Pat, for the opportunity to be here again. And uh, a couple of months ago I was here. It's good to be back. Always good to be sharing with, uh, with folk. Um, general the faith makes you sound old. That's because I am, but uh, it's good to be here. And uh, I might even come back for a present next week. <laughs> to get, uh, I know, we've got family coming around next week. My, my wife and I have nine kids, so I'm looking forward to next, uh, next Sunday. Should be, should be a lot of fun, I think, at our place. Hey, uh, I want to share a thought with you today, and I want you to be honest. You have to be honest in church. I'm going to ask you a question. How many people here love wrestling? Wrestling, Wrestling. yeah. I'm I'm not talking about Olympic wrestling. I'm not talking about Greco-Roman wrestling. I'm talking about WWE wrestling. I'm talking real wrestling. (laughs) How many people... Oh, thank you. That's fantastic. (laughs) And uh, I must confess, I... I don't watch it a bigly, but a bigly that's a great word I don't watch it heaps but i there's a five minute package comes out every week and i I love watching that not for the sport, simply for the theater It's kind of theatrical and you see names and the names come up, and you'd know some of them and the rock and John Cena and Seamus and 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 What you may not know is the history of that, the origins of that go back, and this is where it'll date me, and some of you might know this, but way back in the 60s began a program called World Championship Wrestling on Australian TV. Who remembers World Championship Wrestling? And you've lost your your passion for wrestling. (laughs) That's right. Andre the Giant was one of those. And and there were people like... um, Spirosarion, the Golden Greek, and Mario Milano, the Italian Stallion, and there was Haystacks Calhoun, a huge, big dude from Canada, uh, Andre the Giant. Uh, there was a tag team called Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. Brute Bernard had the claim to fame that his skull was two to three times thicker than any other human being, any other human being on the planet. And uh, Killer Kowalski. The interesting thing about these guys, and even today, is that every one of them has their signature move. And you can be sure that in the bout, somewhere in that bout, they will take on, they will give and do their signature move. And uh, they had a guy called Mark Lewin from New York, and he he would uh, have the signature move called the sleeper hold, where he'd wrap his arms around his opponent's head and neck and after a while, they'd lose consciousness, and the, the, um, the referee's name was Wallaby Bob McMasters from, Mariege, from Mudgery Bar, Queensland. He was called Wallaby Bob because he played for the Wallabies in rugby union. And he would, uh, for, after, for a certain period of time, he'd, he'd lift the arm up of the person, and if they had control of their arm, they'd let the hold go, and eventually, when they lost control, he'd call the end of the bout, and Mark Lewin would win. And Killer Kowalski had this thing called the claw hold, where he got you down on the canvas. it didn't get me down, but he got you down on the canvas and just dug his fingers into your stomach. And the wrestlers in those days had plenty of stomach, I'm telling you. And They had people with all these signature moves. I want to ask you this morning, what do you think Jesus' signature move is? I mean, big picture, his signature moves are love and truth. Jesus came in love and truth. So, They are the things he exercised in his life and in his ministry. But if you combine those together, if you put those together, I think one of the signature moves of Jesus, underneath that big banner of love and truth, one of the signature moves is courage. And I want to talk today about the courage of Jesus. Really important that we look at that. What is the courage of Jesus? That's his signature move. That's what... Stands out. And uh, I say that because sometimes we see a picture of Jesus. We think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who's wandering through a pasture with a lamb. And, and that's, you know, there's pictures in the scripture like that. But we tend to take that and say, well, he's just a nice guy. I want to tell you, Jesus was courageous. He showed a bravery and a gutsiness and a strength That was beyond what we might imagine. And it's that courage I want to talk about today. It's a courage that came with his kingdom. He brought the message of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he came into society, he came into a world that had other kingdoms at the forefront. People built their own kingdoms and people did their own thing. Not... Unlike what we see today, very often around the world, people build their own kingdoms. We build our own kingdoms. Nations build their own kingdoms. And Jesus came bringing his kingdom and he often spoke courageously because his kingdom would clash with another kingdom. And he spoke with power and he spoke with courage and he spoke with guts and he spoke with determination. And he was really concerned when his kingdom clashed to make sure the kingdom values that he stood for stood up. He wasn't so concerned about little kingdoms we make up. I don't don't think Jesus was all that concerned about the paint color on the synagogue walls, things we get so bent out of shape about sometimes. I don't think he was too concerned about, you know, the color of the mat on the floor of the synagogue. I don't think he was too concerned about whether they sang from Sankey's or Hillsong, I don't think that bothered him all that much. But when kingdom values were violated, he brought his kingdom, which meant the the poor get fed and the gospel gets preached and good news goes out to the community and people who are abandoned get hope. When those things were thwarted, he stood up strong. He was able to understand what kingdom values really matter and stand up strong for them. And I want us to look today at the courage of Jesus and to understand what he says and how he stands up, we need to understand some of the history of the time. History that the Gospels tell us, but also that historians tell us, or some historians in the first century world who told us some Christian, some not Christian, who told us the stories that were happening at the time. And when you see what Jesus said in the context of his time, you realize just how <clears throat> courageous he was. So I want to look at that this morning. <clears throat> and Jesus had this, what I would call, a, a spirit of magnificent defiance. He was able to see what mattered, and when things mattered, he stood up. When things didn't matter, it didn't fuss him that much. But he was able to take a stand when it, when it counted. And I want us to just look at some of that scripture with history and say let's look at who he is let's look at what he says what he does so you need to understand Jesus stood in this historical time of a man called Herod he was born during this time with this character called Herod the Great who wasn't great Herod the Great wasn't great he went to become he went 40 BC to Rome to become the king of the Jews. He was anointed king of the Jews by the Romans to look after this province over there where he led. And he ruled there for decades. Herod had 10 wives and 43 kids. One of his wives, one of his favoured wives, was a, a lady called Marianne, who he married when she was 17 years of old of age. She had f- five kids with her. And it was a point of time where he believed that Marian was training up her children to, as a plot against him to take over his rule. So he had her executed and her mother as well. She'll take out your mother-in-law while you're taking out your wife. He saw that two other kids were A little later on, plotting themselves that he he thought to take over, very threatened to take over his reign. So he had them executed. Herod the Great wasn't great. Five days before he died, he executed his eldest son, which caused Caesar over in Rome to say these words, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod the Great wasn't great. He had a group of citizens arrested and the plan was the day he died, he would have them executed so there would be mourning in Israel because they weren't going to mourn for him. But he wanted mourning when he died. So you kill a bunch of people. You see, he's a horrible man. He died a couple of years after Jesus was born. You know the story when he he was still alive when he got two-year-olds and you know, destroyed them. When he died, his three sons, all were Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip the Tetrarch, wanted to have charge of his kingdom. They wanted to have as much as they could, so they went to Rome to see, I think initially, if one of them could get the whole lot, but Rome split it up into three segments, and they gave three sons three different segments, and Herod the Great had the lot, but the sons had three different parts, so Archelaus... One of the sons got the southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem was. He was based there. Herod Antipas, another son, was, had the next reason up around the Sea of Galilee. Third son, Philip the Tetrarch, had a bit further up northwest, up in the top areas there. If you looked on a map, you'd see where they are. And so they became the, the leaders of Israel after their father. And they'd learned a lot of stuff from their dad. They had led poorly and badly with the same sort of moral standards that their father had had. So let's look at Archelaus. And you see that Jesus stands up strongly and courageously in the face of these leaders. In the face of the kingdoms they were building, which was contrary to the kingdom he was building. So let's look at Archelaus, who's based in in Jerusalem. Archelaus, he went to Rome to ask for his part of the kingdom. There was massive unrest. People were not happy with Archelaus because he had the same sort of reputation as his father. They weren't happy at all. At one point in time, Archelaus in his history had 3,000 people gathered and executed at once in one fell swoop. So when he went to Rome to ask for his kingdom to be built and the kingdom he could lead over, a delegation went from the citizens of that Jerusalem area to go to Rome also and plead with Caesar not to appoint him as their leader. Caesar took no notice, appointed Archelaus, and those 50 returned home. You've got to ask us, Is Jesus scared of the power of Rome or is he scared of the power of Archelaus? Well, he tells a story. He tells a parable. But you see, Jesus doesn't tell parables that just pluck them out of the air. He tells parables from what's happening around about him. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 19. We read these words. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once he said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return you see he's just talking history so he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minors put this money to work he said until I come back but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say we don't want this man to be our king He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he'd given the money in order to find out what they'd gained with it. So Jesus interweaves a story of giving 10 minors or 10 talents to, to people and in that story within the context of a current event. He tells that story. He goes on to tell what happens to the people he'd given the money to. Then it says this. He replied, "I tell you to everyone who has more than gi- will be given to him, everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who's nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me." After Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. You see, that's just Jesus telling the story. He tells the story in a parable. Nobody was mistaken about what he meant. Nobody hasn't understood why he's telling that parable. And then he went up to Jerusalem where Archelaus, if I was telling that story, I'd run the other way. He tells the story in the face of the leader and then goes up to where the leader's situated. Courageous, defiant, strong, powerful, in your face, courage, signature move. That's what we see in Jesus He doesn't pick stories out of a vacuum. It's not like Jesus goes, he's a creative dude, and he just picks a story up. No, he takes what's happening. This is the front page of the Jerusalem Times. Jesus takes that story and he weaves another story in there, and then tells what happened. And nobody's mistaken what it was. Then he goes up to Jerusalem. See, keep you keep doing that in Jerusalem. People don't tell; they say those sort of things, and not get killed as you know the story. Let's look at another brother. This is Herod Antipas in that middle region around, around Galilee. And Herod Antipas is the one who had the major run-in with John the Baptist over a woman he took as his wife called Herodias. We'll come to that. But John the Baptist has this clash with... The clash of kingdoms happens with Jesus in this place and happened with John was the clash of the kingdom that was being built and the kingdom of God. And we read this in Luke chapter 3. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, why does Jesus, or why does Luke actually introduce all these details and all these people? I think he's showing us what the kingdom's all about. In that the word of God doesn't come through these people of prestige and these people of titles, and he names all the titles the the political titles, the religious titles. He names them all and then says, but the word of God came from John in the desert. That is great news for you and me because it means that God can work through anyone. God, can, God doesn't have to work through the ones with titles and the ones with profile and the ones with you know influence. All of that happened and God worked through John. And that's when John spoke up strongly and got into trouble. We know that. God lays out in Luke emphasizes that the, he lays out all the kingdoms and where you would think this kingdom, the leaders would come from and who God would speak through. And he says, no, 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 I'm speaking through someone else. It's a weirdo in the desert. That's who I'm speaking through. And what, who counts and who doesn't count in the kingdom of God now stands up. It's not those you think count. It's those of us who are surrendered and open to the word of God in our lives, there's this law of inversion where any one of us can be a kingdom bringer. Any one of us. And that's our call. And you get to the stage where, you know, John's in prison now because he's had a bit of a beef with Herod Antipas and he's wondering, you know, as you would when he knows it's his cousin Jesus, but is he really the Messiah? So we have this. Further on in Luke chapter 3. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when, the, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them. He locked John up in prison. And see, that's what happens when kingdoms clash. People get threatened. And you get locked up and you get shut down and all sorts of, bits of things happen. And, you, and that's what happened to Jesus to John. And word gets to Jesus that he's locked up, his cousin. And as I said before, John's a little uncertain. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I get hammered for it. Jesus, are you really who you say are? You're really the Messiah. So he sends people out to find out. We read this in Matthew 11. After Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on there to preach and teach in the towns of Galilee. So he's moved from Jerusalem up to Galilee. When John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, "Are, are, are you the Messiah? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who've leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In other words, don't go back and give John a theological treatise, a theological explanation. Just go and show him, tell him what I'm doing. That, that'll prove it. Lame walk, the dead are raised. Good news is preached to the poor. You go back and encourage John that way. And so he does, and then Jesus goes and stands up to the man who had put John in prison because of his different kingdom values. And we read this and he tells an amazing story. You see, Herod Antipas' first marriage was a political marriage. If you look at a map, and I didn't bring it with me, but if you look at a map, on the other side of the Jordan River from where Herod Antipas rules is a place called Nabatea. And there's a very strong, powerful military force in Nabatea. King of Nabatea was a very powerful military man. And Herod Antipas married the king of Nabatea's daughter. Pretty smart to marry your enemy's daughter. Kind of brings a peace. So he married, as a political marriage, he married um, the daughter of the king next door, smartly but then something happened which shows you something of the character of Herod Antipas and he fell for his brother's wife his brother his wife called Herodias he fell for her problem was she was married he's married and it's his sister-in-law it's that situation is terrible but before you marry again, you have to divorce your first wife. So he divorces his first wife, which was a, who was a political bride from the daughter of the king of Nabatea. And the historians tell us in the history books that a brawl happened, a fight, a huge fight happened between these two nations or these two parts of nations. And the king of Nabatea, the history books tell us, had an army of 20,000 people who came out to fight against a 10,000-strong army of Galilee, of Antipas. And what happens when you've got 20,000 well-trained soldiers? They creamed, absolutely creamed and trashed the army of Herod Antipas. And when, you, when your army loses and you lose, you lose prestige, you get humiliated. And that's what happened in that nation. Then Jesus tells this story. He tells a couple of stories. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. So he tells a general story. We've all seen houses or buildings that are half up and people don't have the money to finish them and they stay that way for months. That's the kind of story he tells. Then he finishes the story with another story. Well, suppose a king is about to go out against war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long, long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. See, again, Jesus uses a current happening where a the, the king of his own kingdom is humiliated and tells a story. And in my paraphrase, you can paraphrase it the way you want, when he tells the story, he's actually telling the people what foolish, pea-brained, imbecile would think it clever to take his own army, which is half the size of a very strongly trained army, And try and beat them in war. Wouldn't he be wiser to try and work out, you know, terms of peace? And nobody who Jesus spoke to was in any doubt about what he was saying. He's really getting after Herod Antipas. Speaking out the truth. Taking the front story of the Galilean times this time and weaving it into a story, adding it to another small parable, and weaving into a parable to say, how dumb is that? How dumb is your leader? How crazy is that? When he tells that story, it's really in your face. You can get killed for telling stories like that when kingdoms clash. But Jesus is a straight shooter, and he doesn't finish then. Because you see in this same region, um, he keeps going. In those days, it was important for a, a leader to keep their profile before the people. You couldn't send out paraphernalia because there's a lot of illiteracy. People couldn't read or write. So to keep your profile in front of people in those, those nations around about, you would, have, you would put your head on a coin. We still do it. To, to remind people who the leader is. So you'd normally put your head on a coin so that every time people did any kind of transaction in the marketplace, they'd be reminded of their leader because you couldn't send out propaganda because people couldn't read it. But in Israel, you couldn't send out, you couldn't put your head on a coin because you, the scriptures say, you know, the, the old law was there would be no graven images. So every leader had a, a symbol or a totem that would symbolize who they were. And this being the region of Galilee, the symbol of the king of King Ant- Herod Antipas, the symbol was a Galilean reed. So when, that was on the coins. So whenever you saw a Galilean reed on the coin, you would be thinking, that's our leader. That's how they did it. So knowing that, Jesus said this. Luke chapter 7. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Did you, go out to, did you, did you want to follow a king who just flip flops? A reed swayed by the wind? That's what he's talking about. And he goes on, or uh, a reed swayed. No, if you did not. What, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Now those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. See, that's the king of Nabok, King um, Herod Antipas. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. See, Jesus is such a straight shooter. He says, what do you go out to see? Just, do, you, do you just want to you know, follow a king who flip-flops all over the place and just is in finery and lives in palaces? Or do you want to go and see a radical prophet in the desert who will tell you the truth and which kingdom to follow? And Jesus stands up in the middle of Galilee and says that. Just says it, stayed straight out. Courage, guts, straight shooting, determination, really powerful, really in your face. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, let me tell you. This is Jesus, courageous, strong, defiant sometimes, in the face of a foreign kingdom. thing i want to say too is just as we kind of draw this in is that courage breeds courage when you see courage it actually encourages that's what courage means encourage means to put courage in and when people saw the courage of jesus they were encouraged to have courage i want to share with you just a scripture that you and i might have read many times it's just like an introduction it's like the intro, you get through the introduction and then you get to the main story or the main parable or whatever. This is just an introduction. But listen to this. In Luke chapter 8 says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Do you see that? Two amazing things. That Jesus and his disciples were being supported financially by women. That was unheard of in the culture. That didn't happen. But here were some women who had taken the courage of Jesus and been encouraged so much to actually make a difference. But I want you to notice one woman. Did you see it? Joanna. Actually makes a point of saying it. Joanna, the wife of the manager of the household of Herod. What guts, what courage to support Jesus financially from the money her husband gets for being the manager of Herod's household she takes some of that and gives it to Jesus who's in Herod's face courage breeds courage courage matters your courage matters my courage matters the kingdom matters in which we're to have courage really important to understand that courage breeds courage and God calls us to be people of courage it's meant to be part of our signature move in our life and in our faith, in the journey of faith that we have. That's what it's about. I want to ask the question, as I ask myself regularly, too regularly, what are the areas of courage that are lacking in me? I hate that question, but I'm forced to answer it. What are the areas of courage that might be lacking in you? What do I need? What do you need to be fearless about? Let me share a couple. Do you need to stand up? Are there times when I have to stand up and actually make a stand for the kingdom somewhere? Sometimes we need the courage to give up. There might be things that we're rusted onto that we very difficult to let go of, but we know it doesn't help our kingdom journey. But we need to have the courage just to give up. What about the courage to forgive others who've maybe wronged us or offended us or even to be forgiven? Courage to seek forgiveness. Is that part of the courage we need to show? What about the courage to confront? Are there times I need to confront, but you know, I just squirm away because it's the line of resistance but I I know I need to speak up I need to stand what about the courage to commit it may be to commit to Jesus for the very first time or it may be to commit certain areas of our life to Jesus that are still sort of separated or segregated from him it might be these or many others I just wrote these down quickly because I know they relate to me sometimes where is where is your Galilee where is it you need to stand straight and say, I, I, I'm looking this in the face. I'm going to be encouraged by the courage of Jesus. See, so I want to ask that question today. In a moment, I'm going to say to you, if there are areas where you know, you realize that you need an inf- infusion of courage, the Spirit of God who dwells in you, You need him to bring you courage in an area. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. I'm going to ask you to stand where you are and just pray. But my prayer is going to be this. Lord, make me fearless for your kingdom. That's what I want to pray for you. I want to pray for myself. Lord, make me fearless for your kingdom. So I'm going to say that now. I can't see you fully, well, brilliantly, because I've got lots of eyes. I don't know if that's you, but if if you would like that prayer if there's an area of new life in your life where you're just lacking courage and you need the courage of God for something for some situation it might be to stand up might be to give up might be to forgive I want you to stand where you are right now I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird and wonderful just stand where you are right now and I'm going to pray that prayer for you Lord make me fearless for your kingdom just where you are I don't know what that area of courage is and I don't need to know. You know, God knows, and that's what matters. A few seconds and then we're just going to pray. I want to thank you for your courage and standing. That's courageous. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for each person who stood this morning and each person who's seen something of that signature move of Jesus which is courage and said I need, to, I need an infusion of that courage in my own life. I need the spirit of God who dwells within me to, to bring me to that place of conviction or that place of forgiving or that place of standing up. And Father I pray for each person who stands now. And Lord I don't know the circumstances and I don't need to know but you do. So Father for each one I pray that you would just give them that strength Lord, that gutsiness, that kingdom vitality that will stand for you today. Father, I pray for the work of your spirit. For those who are maybe saying yes to Jesus for the first time, Lord, that's a tremendous act of courage. So Lord, for each one, I would just thank you, praise you, and I pray for each person. They will know the next step to take in bringing that courage to bear in reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Please grab a seat. Thank you for that. And I would say to you, whatever that situation was for you, whatever the next steps are, you make sure you take those next steps. Take them quickly and allow God to bring that courage and the courage of Jesus more and more into your life.